Go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 6 is where we find ourselves together today. Uh, we're going to be looking at the second half of Romans 6. So make sure you uh, open your Bible there. We're going to look at verses 15 through 23 this morning. Romans 6, 15 through 23. Um, Essentially, as we're looking at this, chapters 6 and 7 really work together as sort of a big cohesive thought. And so we're breaking it down into smaller port, smaller portions, smaller parts. You know, people have been designed to serve God. That's just part of the way that you as a human have been designed. As a person, God has made you and crafted you with lots of uh, unique uh, types of things that are unique to you as a person, uh, but just unique as far as humanity goes. We're not like anything else in all of creation. And part of that design by God is to serve. Instinctively, we value service. We value the things that, that are uh, the roles uh, that benefit others. You know, just those, uh, those kinds of roles... Uh, like police officers, military, medical, uh, firemen, uh, um, ministry types of positions. You know, we just tend to, to look at those positions where it's solely for the purpose of serving other people. And we look at those with honor and respect and rightly so, because that's part of how we've been described. In fact, Jesus even talked about that thought in connection to himself. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, it says this, for even the Son of Man, speaking of himself, Jesus speaking of himself, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and uh, others and to give his life a ransom for many. Intrinsically, intuitively, we want to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. It's just part of who we are. We're designed to serve. Because this is your design, your default position is going to be in service. You, you don't have a choice as to whether or not you're going to serve. That's just part of the way you've designed. The choice that you have is not will you serve, but who or what will it be? That's the thought that we're looking at. That's the question to answer. And so our big idea today as we look at Romans chapter 6 verses 15 through 23 is this. Living as the slave of God is the doorway to true freedom. Do you want to experience freedom in your life? Do you want to know what it is to actually have the type of freedom that God has provided for you and to experience what, what living life the way God has designed is? Well, you're, you're not going to find it except if you go through the door of the servant. That's the only way to get to that, uh, that life. So let's read Romans 6, 15 through 23, and then we'll break it down together. Romans 6, 15 says this, What then shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that... To, uh, to whom you present yourselves, slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to uncleanness and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have? Uh, when in the things of which you are now, excuse me, what fruit did you have uh, then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Verse 22, but now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to open your word, to be able to look into it. And we pray that as we look upon your word, that you would have it uh, bear down upon us. That we would experience what it is to be transformed by your presence. And God, we realize and recognize that you are a miracle-working God, able to meet with us, um, you know, no matter where we are at, no matter what our proximity is to one another, no matter what our position is on the earth, uh, no matter even if we're listening uh, or watching this recording later on, God, you're able to meet with us in the middle of, you, uh, of where we're at because you transcend all of those things. You are big, you are powerful, you are mighty, you're amazing. And we pray that as we look at the idea of, of you being master and us being slave, that you would give us the ability to hope in that and trust in that and lean upon that and believe in that the way that you've designed us. God, we commit today to you and thank you for it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So today we're going to look at Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 23, and we're going to break it down into three different parts, all right? The verses 15 through 17, slaves present to masters. Verses 18 through 20, slaves perform for masters. And then verses 21 through 23, slaves produce with masters. Now, chapters 6 and 7 build a comprehensive structure for us on how to win your war with sin. If you were with us last week, if you remember from the first half of chapter 6, that's really what we targeted. Here's how you win your war with sin. There's some things that you need to know. And the first and most important premise on winning your war with sin is that you've got to be a Christian. If you're not saved, if you haven't placed your faith in Jesus, if you haven't recognized his death, his burial, his resurrection for you, that Jesus didn't just die because that's just what happens to all people, but Jesus sacrificed himself so that he could save you. If you don't start with that, you're never going to win your war with sin. You can try really hard. You can set up different kinds of, you know, parameters and, and uh, um, uh, fences and different things in your life that are going to try to protect you and keep you from sin, but you're never going to win the war with sin. Not if you're not in Christ. You've got to be saved. You've got to be a Christian first and foremost in order to be able to win your war with sin. And if you remember in the beginning of chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, the big premise of chapter 6 that, that, that it opens up with is the doorway into salvation is through death. That's the only way to get in. Jesus died and his death was on your behalf. He was as your substitute and your savior. And in doing so, when you are united with the likeness of Jesus' death, your death to yourself is how you get into salvation. That, that you've got to be willing to get rid of that old life, pass it off. You, you don't bring that to Jesus and say, you've got to accept all of my flaws and failures and problems and issues and sins, and now you've got to call them good. That's not, if that's what you're looking to try to do, you're not saved. You're not a Christian. You're just trying to get God to like your life and to give you the stamp of approval, and that's not what Christianity is about. In fact, the whole premise is you change just as much as dead people who are made alive change. Just as much as darkness, when it's illuminated by light, changes. There's a dramatic change that takes place. And so in being united with the death of Jesus, we are also united with his resurrection. And resurrection gives us access. Access last week to a new life. And this week in verses 15 through 23, we get access to a new Lord. 
We get access to a new Lord. So that's what we're looking at to get together today. So uh, in, fi- in 15 through 23, what we're looking at today, it's all developed around the analogy of a slave-master relationship. That's what he's talking about here, is that there's this slave-master relationship, and he's using it as an analogy. Now, most of the Christians in Rome would get this thought, because most of the people in, Ro- in the Roman Empire, mo- a majority of the people were slaves. So a majority of the Christians in Rome were slaves. And so they would just get this idea. It would immediately um, uh, grab them and they would immediately understand it. Now the word slave here that we see um, in this section is the, the word doulos. It's the Greek word doulos. And I don't tell you that so you can say, oh, he says Greek words. Uh, I tell you that just so you know which one it is and what we're talking about, okay? So there are multiple words for like a servant or someone who willingly serves, but this isn't that. A slave is someone who is owned by another and they are devoted to their master to the disregard of their own interest and their own will. It's not, it's not like there's this sort of, well, I'll do what you want if you like it, or if I agree with it, or if I think that it's right, or if, you know, if I want to that day. It's not that at all. It's that I am owned, and I do what I am uh, commanded. It doesn't matter if I like it or want to at all. That I have no power, I have no possession, even over myself. I have no power over myself. I don't own any possessions. Everything that I have is my actually my master's. It all belongs to him. Now the word master, it's the Greek word, uh, kurios, and this one is uh, the, the one who's in a unilateral position of sovereignty. They alone are sovereign. They alone are over all. They control and are over all that the slave has. They are the one in absolute power. They have absolute possession, even over the slave in their life. Here's how Jesus says it in John 13, 13. Jesus says, you call me teacher and Lord. That word Lord is the word we're looking at of master, kurios. And you are right because that's what I am. Jesus clearly says, this is who I am. So there's a slave-master relationship, and Jesus puts himself in the position of the master. He's the Lord. This relationship is a type of relationship that one requires the other. A slave requires a master. A master requires a slave. You cannot be a slave if you don't have a master. You cannot be a master if you don't have a slave. This is a relationship that requires both. And so as Paul introduces this concept, this illustration for us, he's bringing the idea of a slave-master relationship to mind. And and what we've got to get is, you are in the position of the slave. The, The only choice that you have is, who's your master? That's what we're looking at. So here's our first part in verses 15 through 17. Slaves present to masters. Look back at verse 15. It says this, what then shall we sin because we are under, uh, not under law, but under grace? Certainly not. Uh, does that sound familiar? Does that sound like something we've read before? It should sound very, very similar to verse one of chapter six. You see, there are two rhetorical questions that divide up this chapter, chapter six, into two pretty neat, easy parts. Uh, Verse 1 is one of those questions, and then here in verse 15, and they look very, very similar. Even the phrasing of them, the structure of them is all this, uh, is very similar, and they help divide chapter 6 for us. Now, here's some important thoughts about these 
these two questions. They're very similar, but they're different. They're actually different questions. In uh, the the nuance of the Greek language, and and again, I don't know Greek. I just know nerds who know Greek who can tell me these things. So uh, in the nuance of the Greek language, what you find is in verse 1 of chapter 6 is it's actually talking about habitual sin, which is why when you read verse 1, it says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin? That, that idea of continue in sin helps us to understand that this is talking about a habitual lifestyle practicing. I'm just going to live this way and try to get Jesus to say that it's good. It says, should we do that? Of course not. That's ridiculous. It, this, uh, this rhetorical question demands the no answer. Verse 15 is a different one. It says, what then shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? This is not talking about a habitual sin. This is talking about an occasional sin. This is just one of those things that sort of pops up into my life and it's, it's not necessarily always there, but it pops up. And should I just go into this? Should I do that? Well, uh, it, it, it's, it's uh, asking that kind of a question. So these are similar questions, but they're different questions. Also, they're self-revelatory questions. I mean, they demand the, the answer, well, of, of course not. I mean, I think if you were to talk to pretty much anybody and you ask them, hey, should we sin? The answer is probably going to be, well, I don't know, that doesn't sound like a good thing. That doesn't sound like something we should do. Uh, not necessarily. That's just one of those things. Now, they may not think that the thing that they're doing is sin. That's another question and another conversation altogether. But when you're asked the question directly, should we sin? Uh, typically, the answer is, of course not, because that's just the self-revelatory nature of the question. And then thirdly, the, this, this question, these questions naturally come up when the gospel of grace is faithfully preached. You see, these questions are the types of questions that come up when, when you're actually brought face to face with how good God's grace is. You can do nothing to earn your salvation. You can do nothing to lose your salvation. You haven't become so awesome that God's like, I need you on my team. That there's nothing you've done like that. And, you, and when you understand the gospel of grace, that it's literally just a free gift, that Jesus just died for you because he loves you that much and that he just wants to give you eternal life. No strings attached. When you preach the gospel like that, the natural question comes up, well, isn't that going to just open the door for people to sin? Uh, that, that, that this is the natural question that comes when people are struggling with grace. And it's appropriate to struggle over these questions because they get us to the heart of the matter. They get us to the right answer. You see, the game changer is that the grace of God um, uh, is, is something that allows us to be united with Jesus' death which then gives us access to his resurrection power. You see, it's, it's impossible for us to live in sin like this because we are raised to a new life in the first half of chapter 6, and now here in verses 15 through uh, 23, we are raised to a new Lord. Essentially what this is saying is that saved people think differently. They have different ways of thinking about sin. They, they're not trying to get, you know, they're not trying to hide it. They're not trying to get other people to approve of it. They're not just saying it's good now. They're not trying to change reality. Save people think differently about sin so they cannot live in sin any longer. Look at verse 16. Notice it says this. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves as slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey? Whether of sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness. Notice the word no there. If you remember from last week, if you were with us, we looked at this word and this was the structure that we looked at for all of our time together. That There were three major things that you needed to know. And now here we continue on with a fourth thing. If you want to win your war with sin, there's some things that you need to know. And the thing that you need to know, number four, is that 
You have a role. You have a role in life. You've been created with a role and you're the slave, not the master. You're the one serving, not the one uh, in position of authority. You're not in control. You're the one that's serving something. Now, this is a hard one for us to grasp especially as Americans in our American culture. We, we don't think like this. We don't think of being in the position that's below. We don't think of the position uh, that's being beneath, the thing that serves and, and uh, is the slave to others. We think of growth and, and development and I, I get the, the promotion. I get in the positions of authority. I go to school so I can get a degree, so I can sit in the office and I don't go in the warehouse and do those things that those other people do. That's just kind of the way that our culture works, that we look down upon on this and we think I'm the master of my destiny. I'm the captain of my ship. No one's can control of me. I'm the one in charge. Biblically speaking, that's just not true. You're serving. You're a slave to something. Here's how 2 Timothy 2, 15, uh, 2 25 through 26 says it. Gently instruct those who oppose the truth. Perhaps God will change those people's hearts and they will uh, learn the truth. Then they will come to their senses and escape from the devil's trap, for they have been held captive by him to do whatever he wants. You see, what this is showing us in 2 Timothy is that we are, when we're not in Christ, when we're not saved, we are actually in prison, imprisoned by the devil to do the will of Satan. That's crazy. So if you're not a Christian right now, you may not think this, you may not believe this, you may not know this or understand this, but you are actually a captive of Satan to accomplish and perform his will in your life. That's a, I don't want that. That is a scary concept. But, but the truth is that you don't have to stay there. You don't have to be enslaved to that master. You can choose another master. You can go after a different master. You see, proclaiming freedom while you're in a prison cell doesn't make you free. It makes you delusional. But that's what a lot of people who aren't saved do. They say, I'm just free. I'm just living my best life now. I'm just doing whatever I want to do. I'm just pursuing my thing. And, and, and yet, inside, they, they most likely know, most people know, this isn't right. Something's broken. Something's off. Something's wrong. Something's just not working the way that it's supposed to work because they're a slave to their sin. They're a slave to their, the, this desire that drives them. They're a slave to the devil to do his will. You see, sin is your master. It's not your servant. And if you think you're free in your sin, you're just delusional. You're not free. You're proclaiming freedom while inside the bars of that prison cell. Here's, here's the thing. Sin promises life. It promises freedom, but it always costs more than you're willing to pay. It always takes more than when you're willing to give. And it always steals more than you hope to gain. Sin is never worth it. It's always going to take more than you think you're going to get from it. And the evidence of your slavery is which master you present yourself to. And the result is where the master is leading you. Look at there in verse 16. It says, uh, you present yourselves. Uh, you're that one's uh, uh, slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. That, that your, your slavery to whatever master you choose, and again, you don't get to say, well, I'm, I'm going to opt out. I just don't want to be a slave to anyone. You're designed this way. You're going to serve somebody. somebody. Uh, I think there was a song written about that. Uh, that, there's just, that there's, there's no other option for that. You're, you're going to serve somebody. And so 
So in that, you either get to serve sin, which is going to lead you to death, or serve the Lord, and that's going to lead you to life. Those are the only two options that you have. The slave of sin leads to death, and the slave of godly obedience leads to righteousness. Now look at verse 17. It says, but God, God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. You see, in this, the Lord has made a way out for us. Even though you were enslaved to sin, even though you were held captive by the devil, Jesus has come, all, come along with the key. He's opened the prison door. He's swung wide the bars. And he said, you can come out. You can be free. You don't have to sit in that slavery anymore. You can come and follow me. And the sad thing is when somebody, they enjoy their prison cell so much that they slam the bars back shut and they say, no, you know what? I think, I think I'm just going to stay in here. Uh, you know, I, I, don't, I don't really know what's going to happen out there. At least I know what's going to happen in here. And so the predictability of the things that are happening in my life, I'm just going to take that. I'm going to take that way out. You see, the Lord has made a way out for us a way for us to be free from a, a slave to sin. But this freedom isn't to be free to yourself. Jesus didn't, Jesus didn't die to pay the price to free you from that prison in order to make you Lord. No, he has freed you and taken his rightful place as your Lord. If, if you're to be free to yourself, uh, that's not really freedom. That's just trading one set of sins for another set of sins. You see, the way out is slavery to obedience to Jesus. That's the way out of the prison. There, there's no other way out. When I'm no longer bound and obligated to serve sin, I become free to serve Jesus. You see, Warren Wiersbe says it like this in his commentary on Romans, Be Right. Uh, he says it like this, the fact that we are saved by grace does not give us an excuse to sin, but it gives us a reason to obey. That's the grace of God. The, the, the grace of God doesn't just open the door to give you freedom to go sin however you want because you're like, well, Jesus, he died for it. So, you know, he's going to forgive me anyway. I might as well just go sin as much as I want. The saved person thinks differently. And they understand that I've been set free by Jesus not to dive into more sin, but to be obedient to the Lord. Now I don't have to sin anymore. Now I can actually honor God with my life. I can actually obey the Lord. Now notice the word in verse 17, form. Do you see it there? Uh, it says, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine. The word form there in verse 17 is a mold that shapes metal. That's the idea. There's this word picture of a mold. You would pour molten metal into it and it shapes the metal into that, that form, that uh, shape. It's a word picture that we have here. Now, God here is shaping our lives. But the first thing that we've got to understand is he's going to turn up the heat and he's going to melt you down. That there's going to be some things that come into your life to melt down your life. And number one, he's going to use the Holy Spirit to do such a thing. In John chapter 16, verse 8, we're told that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. When you sense the conviction of the Holy Spirit upon you, he's melting you down. He's getting you to the point to where you can be shaped into something different. That that's a good thing when you, when you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. 
That's not something to avoid. It's something to go into. The scriptures themselves actually melt you down this way. We read that in Romans chapter 3 about how the, the scriptures bring conviction upon us. They show us right from wrong. They, they delineate where evil and holiness is at. And then also we're told in James that uh, trials in our lives do this. In fact, in 1 Peter, we're told that there, the trials are fiery trials, that God's turning up the heat of difficulty in your life. And all of these things work together to get you into that liquid state so the Lord can shape you. And how does he do it? Well, it's the form of what? The form of doctrine. You see, the mold that God pours you into is doctrine, which is a word for teaching. That God teaches you his word. He teaches you his way. He teaches you the things that he loves. And in order to change us, we've got to go through these mental shifts that God takes us into this molten state in order to shift us and change our mind so that our lives will follow. These are essential things to take place. You see, this happens when God's teaching is delivered by God's spirit from God's word through God's messenger. This is how God changes us and changes our mind. Not only do are we uh, slaves present to masters, but also slaves perform for masters, verses 18 through 20. Look at verse 18. It says this, and having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Now, I don't usually do this, but skip verse 19 and read verse 20 with me. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Do you see how it's saying the same thing just back backwards and forwards? It's saying the exact same thing. Now we're going to cover verse 19 in a minute, but I wanted to pull those two verses out and just to show how these are essentially saying the same thing, just one one way and one the other way. You're either a slave of sin or you're a slave of righteousness. And when you're a slave of one, you're also free from the other. Whichever master you present yourself to, you will also perform for. The master dictates the direction, the master dictates the pace, and the slave must obey. There's no option, no choice for the slave. They are forced in the position of obedience. There's only two options for your slavery, either sin or righteousness. Being enslaved to the master of sin makes you dead to the master of righteousness. But being enslaved to the master of righteousness makes you dead to the master of sin. Because you're in Christ, you don't have to sin any longer. It can be dead and buried and you can be set free from living that way. You see, being alive to sin is death to righteousness, but the opposite is, uh, is true as well. Romans 8.13, which we're going to get to here soon, says, says it like this. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. It is a guarantee. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you will live. There's a promise of life if death is served to sin instead of serving sin with your life. You see, when you perform as the slave of righteousness by faith, you're also putting to death the deeds of the flesh, the sinful nature. You're, that's how you put to death the deeds of the flesh is by pursuing the Lord. You don't just sit back and do nothing. It's that as you're pressing into the things of God, you're, you're actively putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Now, Jesus' death was your death. That was in verse three. Remember that when you were baptized, you were baptized into the death of Jesus, that Jesus' death was your death and it was the means of executing your flesh. Jesus' sacrifice was both as your substitute and as your savior. Jesus died in your place and your, your, um, 
uh, partnering or uniting with Jesus puts to death your flesh. And Jesus, not only did he substitute himself for you, but he also saved you. He, he didn't save you to give you to you. He didn't save you to make you God. He didn't sacrifice himself so that you could be God. He saved you from you. That's who he's saving you from. You're your worst enemy. You're the one taking yourself down. It's not out there. It's not all those people. It's not all those problems. It's not society is against you. It's not the systems and it's the man. It's all them. It's those people. No, it's you. It's in you. You are the problem. You are the issue. And Jesus' death was for you so that that old man could be put to death and you could be raised to newness of life. You see, here's the reality. Jesus has purchased the right to be your master. Are you submitted to him? Are you enslaved to him? See, if Jesus is not your Lord, then he's not your savior. You might say he's your savior. You might say, yeah, I believe in Jesus and all those kinds of things. But if practically speaking, if he's not your Lord, if he's not in control, if you are not his slave, then you're not saved by him. The proof of your, your salvation is when Jesus is in the place, in the position of being Lord. He's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. There's no middle ground on this one. Jesus has that position alone. Now, verse 19 Let's look at that for a couple of minutes here. It says this, if I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. And you might read that and go, what is he talking? The weakness of my flesh? How does that even go into all this? Basically what he's saying is that uh, I, I'm you know, using a, an illustration that's easy to grasp. I'm sorry if this offends you because I know that you guys are, are you know, slaves in Rome. And so I don't really, I'm not trying to just be mean or just you know, point out your slavery or whatever. I'm not trying to do that kind of a thing. I'm just using a term that's easy for you to understand. You see, unpeople, unsaved people work for sin every moment of the day right? Because they're slaves of sin. They're slaves of the devil, like we read in uh, 2 Timothy. And be when you're not saved, that's the position that you're in. So every moment of every day, all of your thoughts, both waking and sleeping, all of your breath, all of your activity, all of your action, all of your energy goes to serving the master of sin, which brings death. Notice what it says there in verse uh, 19. Um, for just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now, see the contrast? The way you did that, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. If, you, if unsaved people work so hard for sin, shouldn't saved people work even harder for righteousness and holiness? Shouldn't we be given to the things of the Lord? Shouldn't we be pursuing holiness and righteousness? Shouldn't we be serving our God to exhaustion? Shouldn't that be the way that we, lo we live for him? I mean, we give so, I mean, I think about my life and how much I lived for sin before coming to salvation. And I think, man, what a fool. I, I wasted so much time, so much energy, so much effort. And Jesus was so gracious to save me. Now, I want to be wrung out for Jesus. I, I want to be skidding into heaven on fumes like, man, that was a wild ride. That's all I got. I got nothing left. I don't want to have like gas in the tank going, I just, I just coasted by and, you know, I made it. 
It's good. I don't want to. I don't want to come in like that. I, I think uh, my wife this week she put a um, a, uh, a post on uh, social media. I, I don't remember the quote exactly, but essentially the thought was, I don't want to reach out and uh, to shake Jesus's hand with an uncalloused, uh, uh, perfectly clean hand to shake his nail pierced hand. I, I don't want to do that. I want mine to be worn out. I want mine to be wrung out. I want to make sure that that I've given my all for the Lord because that's what He deserves. I'm his slave. I need to give my all for him, not just phone it in or just kind of do it when it feels right or feels good or if I happen to have some extra time. See, when you present your members to perform for one master um, or the other, you are making a choice as the slave to perform for that master. Here's how David Guzik says it. Your life is lived in a direction of either obedience to sin or obedience to righteousness. And you have to choose which one. What are you going to live for? You are a slave. You don't get to pick that. Which direction are you going to go? Are you going to be a slave of sin? Or are you going to be the slave of righteousness and obedience to Jesus? Now, God made his people in his image. And when we were created, go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, that God made people in, in his image. Now, at chapter 3 of Genesis, at the fall, that's when sin entered the world. When sin entered the world and people became fallen instead of perfect, we didn't lose the image of God. We kept the image of God. That came through. It was just a marred, perverted, broken, fallen uh, type of the uh, image of God. We carry that forward. Now, at, uh, now, when you fast forward to the Gospels in the New Testament and Jesus comes on the scene and he sacrifices himself and offers salvation, we, when we are saved, we carry the image of God and the fallen nature into salvation. And so this is where Christians have this sort of dual nature that we wrestle with. There's this part where it's like, I want to be the slave of the Lord. I want to serve him with my everything. And yet something keeps dragging me back down. Something keeps taking me back into depravity. That something keeps uh, uh, um, taking me into sin and to death. And that is the flesh. Because though you have a new nature in Christ, there's still the old man that is around and he's coming after you trying to take you down. We'll get more into that in chapter seven. Now notice it says there, uh, one of the thoughts here, in verse 19, it says, uh, you presented yourselves as unclean, uh, your members as slaves of uncleanness and of, check this out, lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. And then there's also another phrase here at the end. It says in uh, verse 19, uh, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. What, what this is talking about here is the principle of spiritual momentum. We see this in a lot of things in life. It's very easy to understand in terms of just physical things, but basically it's easier to keep something moving in the direction it's already going, right? That's just kind of the way that things work. It's a lot easier once it is moving a certain direction to keep it going that direction than it is to change it and to change the direction, especially to go the opposite direction. And so it is spiritually. When you are living your life in the direction of lawlessness, you know what's easy? More lawlessness, more sin, more depravity. And when that direction is changed, 
It's going to take some time to build some momentum in the right direction. It's going to take a little bit more effort. And sometimes you feel like you're just pressing on this huge stone and you, can, you can't even really get it to move and it barely creeps forward. And you feel like you've given your everything to just get that one inch of roll on this stone and you're just exhausted and you're spent and that's everything you've got. But then you keep pushing and you keep going and you, you keep moving and it starts to actually move. It starts to actually go a little bit. And if you don't give up, if you keep pushing, you keep pressing, eventually you'll be able to get that thing rolling and it'll be moving in the direction of holiness and of the direction of righteousness. And then the walls that used to hold you back, the stuff that you used to be held captive by, now you've got so much momentum, you just break right through those things. It's like they don't even exist. You just smash through them. Why? Because of momentum. Not because you're so strong, not because you're so awesome, but because you built a habit of pursuit of holiness in your life. You see, if you're going to be given to lawlessness, the natural result is more lawlessness. But if you decide to change that and you say, God, I want to be your slave and by your spirit's power, by your strength, by your blood, Lord Jesus, help me to be like you. Help me to build momentum in this direction. It can be difficult at first, but a little bit in the right direction is a big deal. It's a big deal. Celebrate those small victories and keep moving forward. It's going to get easier. Now, thirdly, not only do slaves present to masters and perform for masters, but slaves also produce with masters. Verses 21 through 23. Look at verse 21. It says this, what fruit did you have when, uh, excuse me, what fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is Death. You see, both masters, the master of slaves, that, uh, excuse me, the master of sin that leads to death and the master of Jesus leading to life, both masters have a result in mind. There's something they seek to produce through their slaves. There is fruit. Do you see that there in verse 21? What fruit did you have? They're looking to produce fruit. And this is the idea of what grows out of your life. Just like when you look at an apple tree, you expect there to be Apples, correct, yes. You don't expect there to, to be nothing on that tree and you definitely don't expect there to be grapes on that tree because it's an apple tree. You, you expect certain fruit off of certain trees. And so too, when you are lived, in, when, when your tree, if you're the tree, when your roots are deep into the soil of sin, you know what the produce is gonna be? Death. But when your roots are deep in the soil of Jesus and righteousness and godly obedience, the produce is life. The produce is life. You see, the, the flesh produces a rotten, decayed fruit with the stench of a corpse. That's all it can produce. It's not beautiful. It's not amazing. It's not pretty. It's not great. But the world tries really hard to paint it up and to make it look awesome. Spraying perfume on it and saying, this is so beautiful. Isn't this so amazing? Isn't this so great? Isn't this my freedom? No, it's not. It's death. It's, it's just, it's rotten. It's, it stinks. It's terrible. And when your, your life is producing something so disgusting and grotesque like that, it's actually shameful. It's actually shameful. You know, we like to avoid shame as a people. We've learned to do it. We think shame's bad. We think shame is this thing that we keep, a, keep away from ourselves, but it's actually good. It's actually necessary. You actually need to feel it. You see, shame is a powerful tool that leads us to repentance. If you don't feel shame about your sin, then you think it's right. 
then you think it's good. Then you think it's appropriate. But when you sense that shame, that, that's good to feel that if it leads you to repentance, right? It's not something that we use to bludgeon people. It's not something that we use to just beat people up with, but it's something that the Lord uses to bring us to him because he's using that to get us to the end of ourselves. So we'll trust him to be able to fix it. Our, our modern culture causes shame bad. They diagnose it as some kind of disorder and try to dull it with medication. That's what our culture does. A lot of people on lots of medications because of the shame of their sin and they're trying to escape the shame of their sin without going to Jesus. They want their sin. They want to enjoy and indulge. They want to dive headlong into filth and then they feel bad when they're filthy and then they go to a doctor to get a pill so they don't feel bad and then their senses are dulled and they wonder why they're crazy because you're trying to fix a spiritual problem with a physical tool. Spiritual problems have got to be fixed spiritually. The only way to fix this, this, this spiritual problem is through forgiveness and cleansing. And Jesus' blood does both. That's what 1 John chapter 1 verse 9 tells us. But if we confess our sin to him, see the, see the clause? If you confess your sin. Not if you cover it up, not if you call it good, not if you try to get Jesus to accept it, not if you take this pill, not if you go talk to this therapist, not any of those things. If you confess your sin, then, then what, you, what do you get? He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. Now, sure, there's, there's a right place for people to go and seek therapy. There's a right place for some people they need some medications for some different things, but not for sin. Not for sin. You're trying to cover up what only Jesus can deal with. You're trying to feel good about something you shouldn't feel good about. That's why you feel terrible. That's why you feel rotten inside. Because you need to bring it to Jesus. Only he can fix it. Nobody else can. There's not, a, there's not a thing that you can do. There's no cure for guilt and shame in religious ceremony. There's no cure for it in social causes. You can't get enough, behind enough social causes to do this. You can't uh, dive into enough politic, politics. There's not enough surgeries that you can have to fix this. There's not enough, um, there are not enough pills you can take. There's not enough recreation you can go on. There are not, there's not enough popularity you can gain. There's not enough money in your bank account you can get. There is not enough stuff you can grasp. There's not enough power you can have to fix this. Only, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Only the blood of Jesus can get rid of that guilt, can take care of that shame. Now notice verse 22, it says this, but now, but now, I love that. So instead of this, instead of having this shame, now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end is everlasting life. I mean, it's like it just gets better and better and better. Not only are you not a slave to sin, but you've been set free to the Lord. And what does he do to you? He gives you the gift of everlasting life. What an amazing kind of a thing. You see, the forgiven and clean heart is now free to be slaves of God. Instead of shame resulting in death, it's holiness resulting in everlasting life. Well, what a crazy trade. What an amazing thing we get to trade out for. You see, for the lost, sin is as natural as breathing. It's just like breathing. You, just, you don't even have to try to do it. I just, I just sin. That's just the way I was. When I, before Jesus, I wasn't trying to sin. It just came out all the time. And there was lots of times where I didn't necessarily want to, but it still came out of my life. 
It just is the way that my life was lived. And for the saved, righteousness must become just as natural. It has to be just as natural as sin is to the unsaved. It's like your environment. You know, you live, you and I, we live in this world and we breathe air. And, you know, it's really good to breathe air. I don't know if you've ever tried to breathe water. It's a bad thing. You usually choke. Um, my, my family and I, we went to, uh, uh, we went camping this past weekend and we went to the lake. And uh, my wife decided I needed to go into the lake. And so she tipped the board we were on and I had to, I got to breathe some air or breathe some water right through my nose. It was a, an amazing thing. Uh, and I got a foot injury as, as a result as well. I don't blame you though, love. I don't blame you. Um, but, <laughs> the, the thing is that if you try to breathe that water, you're going to have some big problems unless there's a massive transformation that takes place. Unless something radically shifts, unless you are absolutely transformed to be able to breathe the water, then you can live in a new environment. And that's exactly what he's talking about here in this section. You used to live in the environment of sin. You used to be under that environment. Now get under the environment of grace the transformation power of God has literally changed you. His grace changes you and transforms you so that you can live in this new environment. God's grace fundamentally transforms us so now I can live in this new environment. Verse 23 says this, but now having been set free from, oh, excuse me, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, this is a summary statement contrasting the payout that sin will always pay out death. And God's payout is greater than just a wage. It's not something you just earn. You know, you go, you go to work, right? And you expect your boss to pay you at the end of the week. Well, if you're the slave of sin, then the payout that you can expect at the end of the week, if you want to say it that way, is death. That's what you get for your sin. God has a payout as well. But his payout is so much better because you can't even earn it. He just gives it away to you. He just gives it away to you. And what does he give you? Not something temporary. He gives you eternal life. Not just better than death, but eternally better than death. What an amazing thing. You see, to win your war with sin, you need to know you're a slave. You need to know that God's a good master. And you need to know that God is so good that he's willing to give you what you could never earn in that eternal life. When the goal at the end is worth it, then you keep your eye on that prize. And then what seems too hard becomes simple and easy to endure because you get that spiritual momentum going in the right direction. I want to close by pointing our attention to the book of Luke. So if you'll turn with me to Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32, I want to read this with you. Luke 15, 11. Um, and uh, just point out, excuse I went the wrong way, uh, point out one thing with you, a couple of just real quick things in here. There are a lot of things that we could look at in Luke 11, 15, um, excuse me, 15, 11. Um, but uh, there are a lot of things we could talk through with this. But I just want to point out uh, the flow of all of this. The, 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 draw our attention to the flow of what Jesus says. So Jesus is teaching here and he teaches and I just want his words to finish up for us. I think he uses a tremendous illustration that really grasps this whole point and this concept for us. So Jesus says this in uh, Luke 15, 11. Then he said, a certain man had two sons and the, youngers, uh, the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided them uh, to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and journeyed to a faraway country and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land and he began to be in want. 
Then he went and journey, uh, joined himself to a citizen of the country and he sent him to his uh, fields to feed swine. Verse 16, and he, he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare and I perish with hunger? I will rise, I'll go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven before you. And I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his finger. Uh, and sandals on his, uh, put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring out the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this is my son who was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. He, and they began to be merry. And now his older brother was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard the music and the dancing. So he called uh, one of the servants and asked, what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and because he, he has uh, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you and never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I may make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of your, yours uh, came who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you kill the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that I have is yours. It is right that we should make merry and be glad for, listen to this, your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. You see, Jesus in this illustration, he tells us uh, some, some important things, but uh, I just want to draw our attention to the flow of this. You see, the son believed that the world out there had what he needed. He thought that if I could just get free from my father, if I could just go out there, then I would find myself and I would be able to enjoy myself. That's what he thought. And so he left and he went out. And, and what he found was, you know, my father, I thought he was holding me back, but the reality was that he came to himself in repentance. You see that there in verse 17, that he came to himself. And when he came to himself, repentance led him back to his father and he found that in obedience, he was truly free. That's where the freedom was found, found. He was free to find himself in that obedience and he was free to enjoy himself in that obedience. It wasn't out there. It wasn't in what the world offered. It wasn't in the seeming pleasures. It wasn't in the sin that he wanted to dive headlong into. No, it was in the obedience that he needed. You see, you will by default be serving someone or something. The question is not whether or not you're a servant, whether or not you're a slave. The, the question is who or what will it be? Will you serve Jesus? Will you be his slave? Will you give yourself into his care? Maybe for some of you, you've never done that. And today's the day. Right now is the moment where you need to finally submit your heart and your life to Jesus. You've been playing the games. You've been running away. You've tried just like this, this son. You've tried to dive headlong into whatever sin crossed your path and you found it to be empty. Whatever you hoped to gain, it actually took from you. Today, if that's you, then, then I just want to encourage you. Just submit your heart to Jesus. 
There's no special words you need to say. There's no certain things you got to go through. There's not a religious ceremony you have to jump through. All you have to do is be willing to cry out to him and say, Jesus, I've sinned against you. Would you forgive me? I recognize that your death was for my sin. Would you forgive me and make me yours? Something as simple like that is meant from your heart and he will receive you. Abandon that sin and pursue him. Or maybe for some of you, you've been saved. You're like this son. You, you were a son and you tried to wander off into sinfulness and he's calling you back and today's the day of repentance. For whoever, for wherever you're at, I, I pray that, that uh, Jesus would be your, uh, your master. And maybe some of you, you're, you're doing well, but, but don't get an attitude like this second son and get mad about those others. Renew your heart and steadfast commitment to serve the Lord as your master. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the opportunity to study it together and we pray that you would be glorified in uh, this place. God, that your name would be made great, that we would truly pursue you as uh, you are the master and we would take our right position as slave. God, we know that we need you desperately and we pray that your, uh, your word would find root in our heart and you would transform us entirely. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.